Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill, where you get two film and or media discussions for the price of one, which is nothing. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to randomly select the yin and yang of a double feature. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for each episode. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani. And I am Adam S. Thomas I. And we are just two wild and crazy guys! (laughs) Yes. So, uh, in case you couldn't tell from that wonderful impression I just did, we yeah, are, fantastic. It's, it's uncanny. It's like he is yeah. in the room. And who is he? Yeah. It is Steve Martin, who um, is our topic for today. And we are celebrating Steve Martin because it is his birthday, the week that we are releasing this. I think even the day of, if everything goes right, will be August 14th that we release this. His birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. Martin. Happy birthday, Mr. Martin. Yeah, it sounds like a 50s era film of some sort. Yeah. Like, um, and this is interesting. We've never done a specific person before for a topic. We've done franchises, we've done genres, but we've never done a person as a topic. And I think it's interesting to put out there before we do anything else that when we are doing both a good and a bad film of Steve Martin, we're not trying to decry him necessarily as much as celebrate. Because I will say that I love Steve Martin. I think Steve Martin is one of my favorite comedic personas out there. Um, I grew up with Steve Martin. I remember the first time I ever saw Steve Martin was, uh, my dad was introducing me actually to, speaking of comedic influences of mine when I was a kid, uh, The Muppets. I remember he had VHSs of The Muppet Show that he would show me, and I was loving The Muppets, and I remember distinctly Steve Martin's episode of The Muppet Show because it was so unlike the formula. It was um, an example where he was about to go out and do the show in narrative, and then Kermit stops the show because he has to audition new acts. And so it isn't the usual laugh track, it's the actual Muppet characters watching new acts perform, and also Steve Martin does stand-up sets and his usual shtick in between. And I found him to be such a fun, wacky presence, who I felt matured as time went on. He kind of reminds me of like a comedic version of a David Bowie, in terms of he doesn't really ever want to go back, doesn't really go to his old shtick all the time, and he kind of decides to do new things, explore new ideas, do different things like um, doing banjo sets now as opposed to mostly doing comedy and other stuff like that, uh, writing a musical, which he recently did. Um, I, I think he's a real renaissance man who, you know, has made pitfalls that we're definitely going to talk at least about one of them this evening. What about you, Adam? I mean, how can you not like Steve Martin, man? Uh, he's in one of my favorite, I'm not going to mention it just in case you pick it, but he's in actually two of my favorite all-time movies. Um, I love Steve Martin. And uh, in fact, I just saw his new, I don't know if you watched it, the new special on Netflix with him and Martin Short. Yes, I did. I actually did watch that. How endearing were both of them in that special? Two old comedians and just still not missing a beat, either of them. I, I would definitely say that for Steve Martin. 
Martin Short kind of gets on my nerves sometimes. Oh, I, I like Martin, Martin Short. I, I like Martin Short. I, I like Martin Short, but I think there are points where he gets untethered and it becomes a bit annoying. But that's yeah, he's got a little bit of Robin Williamsy. A bit, yes. Uh, but that's yeah. that's another discussion. We're not talking about him. We're talking about a different Martin, a Mr. Steve Martin. Yes, and we are. So I have the two good movies for this week, and Adam has the two mm-hmm. bad. And so for those of you who might be new, the two of us will pick a number between 1 and 10 for each other's two movies. And whichever one we get closest to will be the good and then bad feature that we cover. So I got the two good ones. So Adam, go ahead and pick a number between 1 and 10. Oh, yeah. Let's go to number 4. Well, at number 2 is one that I think also gets lost in the shuffle a bit for uh, Mr. Martin's career. But one that I personally really love, it is... L.A. Story. Oh, that's a good movie. I haven't seen that in years. Oh, I'm excited to rewatch that. Good call. Yes, and at number nine was another one that's more in his sort of earlier silly game, not quite as famous as The Jerk, but The Man with Two Brains. Oh, God, what a great movie, too. <laughs> I love that movie so much. Fuck, it's so good. <laughs> Starring Mr. Morton as... <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite Doctor. absurdist <laughs> character <laughs> names in the movie it's so good uh but now yeah. we the other side of that coin so number between one and ten i will go for number nine at number eight is sergeant bilko oh for a hot second i thought you were gonna say sergeant pepper's only hearts club band no nope. sergeant bilko yeah sergeant bilko buddy uh, uh, i know never have seen that one. Oh well oh fuck you're not gonna be happy <laughs> Um, at number three, I had the Out of Towners with him and uh, oh god, now I lost her name. Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn. <laughs> of course, that's the, that is the six degrees, just like fucking Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Sergeant Bilko is not good. You're not gonna have fun. Well, we will test that theory. Right after this. Uh, rather than do an interview with me, which would be fascinating, by the way, I thought that possibly I'd take you on a, you know, kind of a cultural tour of L.A. What, she's seeing someone else? Yes, yes, she's going away with me. Go, go away with me. I can't, don't you see? I would just be using you to get even with her for going away with someone else. I don't mind. Let's go. Great. Woo! Steve Martin. Did you know that the same technology used to clean up the Alaskan oil spill can also suck fat from your thighs and chin? L.A. Story. I'll have a decaf coffee. I'll have a decaf espresso. I'll have a double decaf cappuccino. Jimmy decaffeinated coffee ice cream. I'll have a half double decaffeinated half cap with a twist of lemon. I'll have a twist of lemon. I'll have a twist of lemon. Yeah, I'll have a twist of lemon. I'll have a twist of lemon. And we are back uh, having just seen our double feature. And, you know, we were commenting on this before we started, Adam, but I don't think we ended up getting too bad a double feature this week. No, I'm not too mad at either. But let's start off with admittingly the better of our two films for the yes, evening, which yeah, is pleasure. L.A. Story, which uh, came out February eighth, nineteen ninety one, and it's written by Steve Martin. Uh, it's directed by Mick Jackson, uh, who would later go on the following year to make the incredibly mega successful The Bodyguard, starring Whitney Houston. This is curious because I would say I, I've said this ever since I've seen all three of these films that there's sort of an essential trilogy that I would recommend to anybody if you want to track Steve Martin's career. Um, I would say it's The Jerk. And all these are written by Steve Martin. That's the big thing, is uh, with the first one, The Jerk, 
Mazur represents his sillier period, his Carl Reiner era. Uh, then L.A. Story, which is kind of like a middle ground between that silliness and a lot more of the seriousness that he'd kind of do later in his career. And then Shop Girl, which I don't think is a great movie, but I think is yeah. really representational of sort of his maturing as a screenwriter. And as a- I agree with that, but I remember when Shop Girl came out, he kind of caught some flack. I don't know if you remember, because he came out with his serious piece right when Bill Murray was doing all his serious pieces. Mm-hmm. And people were like, oh, he's just trying to ape on Bill Murray now. I don't feel I don't that's, think fair. that's the case. Especially because Bill Murray, honestly, was kind of doing that even earlier. No one just gave a shit with, uh, what was it? It's Razor's Edge, right? Yeah, was, Razor's Edge. Right, and that was like the same year as Ghostbusters, and nobody gave a shit about that. But we're getting off track. So, L.A. Story, I would I would definitely say is sort of that middle ground. And I think it's interesting watching it again. I kind of felt that, especially in context of his character, if you maybe haven't seen this movie, um, is Harris Telemacher which I love the names he always comes up with for his characters. There's such great, yeah, memorable great. character names. And he is a wacky weatherman who lives in L.A., and it's very much a film based in its time of 1991, specifically L.A., um, to the point where... He, my favorite scene in the whole movie is this bit where he's talking to his girlfriend and finds out she's been sleeping with his agent uh, for the last several years. And um, I, I love... He says... Oh my god, this has been going on for three years? This has been going on since the 80s? Great line. Oh yeah. Tremendous line. line. Um, But he plays a wacky weatherman, and I think a lot of the anxiety he sort of has at being the wacky weatherman kind of mirrors Steve's own sort of attempt to progress beyond those jerk years. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. See, the thing is, I I think I saw this movie when I was younger, but I honestly didn't remember any of it. And I didn't realize it was written by Steve Martin for some reason. But then on the second watch, when it said written by Steve Martin, I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense that he wrote this movie. Because it's it's really him distancing himself from all the snobbery of L.A. and coming into his own. Watching it, especially this time, I kind of realized this is basically sort of his Woody Allen movie in terms of it's him talking about L.A., which is a place he's lived in all his life. And it's him wow, kind of that's talking. a really good way to put it. It right, does feel almost like a Woody Allen movie. It's like a, it's a Woody Allen movie, but you don't feel the guilt of watching Woody Allen movie and enjoying it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to quote a very overused term, L.A. feels like a character in this film, and uh, you you can really sense that in t- you know that he's lived in this place for so long he knows the various avenues i love the whole scene at the beginning where he's stuck in traffic and he just goes through like the neighbor's yards in his car and they all treat it's just like oh this is normal he does this all the time like that sort of surreal hilarity that's going on they're embracing sort of the um weirdness of la i think they do such a great job especially like the big opening said to la mer which is the Beyond the Sea original French version, and the hot dog that's floating around is all, like, synchronizing, like, picking up newspapers and shit. I love that whole opening. It really kind of gets you into the surreal, fun tone of it. Yeah, I agree. And then they followed it up with the freeway scene, which was so funny to me, (laughs) where he's just wildly firing that giant 357 Magnum. It was so funny. It becomes his Mad Max movie all of a sudden. No, bullets don't expire. They're not like milk. (laughs) I like how the relationships are sort of handled in this movie, where it's sort of a love triangle thing, um, where he's got Mary Lou Henry as his original girlfriend that he's with, and sort of how they clash, and then there's also um, Sarah Jessica Parker in, 
I think, a very important point for her career. Because prior to this, she was mostly known for, like, what she was on the TV show, right? What was it? Oh, man, I don't remember. I'm not, you know, and it's not that I don't remember. I probably never, I mean, I'm sure I've heard of it, but I just, I am not a big uh, SJP fan. Neither am I, um, necessarily, mm-hmm. but I think this is, I, I think, a key role for her, because she's even said it herself, that she was mostly known as sort of just, like, a younger girl. She had had a career on um, Square Pegs, that's it. Square oh, Pegs. Square Pegs. <laughs> yes. yes. Square Pegs was, uh, like, and sort of being, um, you know, like a child actress, and this was her first sort of mature, sexier role, and admittingly, it's very much a manic pixie dream girl. But she plays sure. it so well because of the confidence she has in herself and the total lack of judgment about both herself and also Steve Martin or anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I love how fun and free-spirited she is, especially the whole running gag with her boyfriend. I was just going to say, when he's at the bar staring at them, and he just looks so defeated. <laughs> and she's like, this is him! <laughs> Yeah, this, this is, is the his. guy. <laughs> He's just the guy. This is the one you t- wanted me to call. And when they're leaving, say goodbye to Eric or whatever his name is. He's hanging out the window. <laughs> so funny. For sure. Yeah. No, I, 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 I really dug her in this. Um, and like I said, I'm not really a fan of hers, but she was really good in this. And you could tell, that, like, as she said, and you got to agree with her, this is the movie that really sort of made her. Or the role that at least showed that she can do other things except for shitty sitcoms. <laughs> or an HBO series that becomes massively successful and sort of shapes her whole career after that point. But that's a different story. Uh, though That we will we'll never, ever, ever get into. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> them Sex and the City movies could be something. We might uh, put the back pockets, maybe. Oh, um, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think the the big sort of standout for me, and honestly, watching this really just crystallized that I, I wished this actress sort of became more of a thing. Victoria Tennant, playing his sort of main love interest, uh, Sarah McDowell, is incredibly charming. I, I've only seen her really in this and All of Me, which was an earlier Steve yeah. Martin film, and yeah. she is so, like, radiant. And she has a danger of becoming kind of manic pixie dream girlish at the beginning, but then as mm-hmm. you go along, especially her relationship with Richard E. Grant, um, I think really who's just... really good in this too. Yes, um, I, he's ex- just a good actor, but no, he really is. Uh, but I, I think a, a big thing with Steve Martin in general is he's very generous with his time with his supporting actors, and I think this is a big example of that, especially for her. Because she has a bit more of a complexity to her in terms of her relationship with Richard E. Grant, and how that kind of conflicts with Steve Martin. At the same time, she also has another recurring Steve Martin motif of his love interest playing weird instruments that you wouldn't expect at the wrong time. (laughs) Like Bernadette Peters and the Jerk, where with her uh, horn versus here, she's uh, playing the tuba, which is great. I I love that she has this giant fucking stupid tuba, and she loves playing it. (laughs) And I love when he goes to pick her up, and he's like, oh, you play the tuba? No. Well, I do. Just, I wasn't right now. Hold on, I'll be right back. Womp. <laughs> it comes out again. Just gotta finish the note. <laughs> but she plays a great equal to Steve, which is something you don't always get in romantic comedies, especially. And this is the first romantic comedy we've covered on the show. And I think that sort of witty back and forth, it, it, it feels like I said there's generosity in sort of them going back and forth on here. I, I think it, it, it very much feels... Like, he cares about her getting as much of, like, a character depth as he does. Which is, admittingly, it's a very silly movie, but I think there's some honest truth 
to some of the moments that, you know, pop up. And I think especially when it even does get sort of serious and there are moments like there's a lot of Enya music in this movie. And I, Enya. I, I I thought going into this that would be the stuff that held up the least well. But honestly, I was surprised by how well these sort of Enya music videos kind of fit into their exploration of their relationship and them kind of embracing this sort of middle age period of their lives. Oh, definitely. Especially the climax, the Enya music when it's swelling and stuff. I mean, it was, it was very, very, it fit. Um, and no, I agree with you. It never felt like Steve Martin was steamrolling. Mm-hmm. You know how that definitely does happen in a lot of these romantic comedies when typically the male actor is the bigger star, um, at least in this era. Um, I think that sort of switch nowadays where the female actress is sort of bigger, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, I never got the impression that he was steamrolling her or that he was dumbed down her character. So his would seem more genuine or anything. They were both, she was a really sweet character. Um, very complex, flawed, um, quirky in the right way, not overtly where it became annoying. Yeah. I really liked her. And I, like you said, I, I, think this might be one of the only things i've seen her in as well yeah and at the time she and martin were married uh they had been married since they met on the set of all of me and no shit See, i didn't even know that yes uh they were they were married for quite a bit of time and you can feel that authentic sort of lived in chemistry that comes about but at the same time it still has an authentic sort of like first love meeting kind of thing when they both come together and i i love especially all the stuff at that uh restaurant that one has a lot of fun bits of particularly the whole coffee thing of I'll have a half tap, <laughs> half cap decaf and all that stuff. But then actually the bit where he's just like, it was the first time I ever touched her and it's just something calm and something simple, just like touching her on the shoulder and how he still feels like this elation that it really captures that moment of like finding somebody and seeing them just being infatuated so quickly. Oh, I agree. And speaking of that coffee table scene, I mean, how many recognizable faces were at this, that table? This whole movie, we're going to talk about I this. mean, it was insane. Oh. I mean, Larry Miller, for one, I love Larry Miller. <laughs> Who's great. And, I love that he's got the cast he's on. He's got the back brace. He's standing up the whole time. <laughs> yep. I, I love him. Everything he's in, he's, he's just, he kills me. For some reason, something about that guy just makes me laugh so hard. I mean, but then he got Chevy Chase in the one quick scene, but man... We got to give it to Sir Patrick Stewart. That's hilarious. See, see, there are moments in this movie, like I said, that feel very much of its time. And then there are others mm-hmm. that feel incredibly universal. And the scene of Steve Martin trying to get a dinner reservation at Patrick Stewart's restaurant and it treating like a trying to get a loan is right. amazing and <laughs> yep. so true. He's not allowed to have the duck. <laughs> All right, but I, my date has to get something, whatever she wants. Uh, okay, fine. We can pencil you in in. Eight weeks. Hey, I like I like a gamble. <laughs> uh, very very wonderful. Um, but also, even in that earlier scene, there's also like Kevin Pollock is his agent, um, who's a great comedic uh, actor. As Sam McMurray, great character actor. Iman, also just I, there. <laughs> yeah, for that one scene. Yep, just that one scene there. Just like, oh hey, Iman. He mentioned some of the other cameos that Chevy Chase is in there. Uh, in a scene that feels very prescient to Chevy's future, given 1991, this is around the time he started just, like, completely falling apart. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was still, like, pre-hardcore dickish reputation, Chevy Chase. Yes, but, I mean, he's but, still but always... this is after... It's also around the time he started losing his cachet. This is the same year as Nothing But Trouble. 
So this is right oh, around where like his star cachet was starting to dwindle along with his general reputation of being an asshole, starts to, like, really increase. That, this is the point where it kind of starts flummoxing, and I love the fact that it's represented so well by Patrick Stewart saying, like, oh, your usual table, but I want one that isn't shitty. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Dude, Woody Harrelson. Amazing. As uh, I, his boss, briefly. I, like, when he had the sunglasses on and everything, I, I honestly didn't even recognize him. And then when he's in the elevator, I'm like, oh, yeah, then they do that real funny bit. He's like, I don't ever want to see your face again. The elevator doors close and reopen. He's like, I said hey, I don't ever want to see your face again. <laughs> really great. Um, you also get a brief voice cameo by Terry Jones as Sarah's mother when they do their little tuba duet. Um, and Rick Moranis in a very charming scene that is a riff on William Shakespeare with uh, Hamlet, the gravedigger scene. So, so many fun cameos just come in, and it definitely feels like it's sort of these people embracing what Steve's kind of doing. It, it's clear that they're just like, oh, this is a story about L.A., and there's a lot of stuff that's very true to L.A. It's very silly, but you also get a lot of... There's a good spine of truth. There was the perfect amount of seriousness and light comedy and just crazy off-the-wall zaniness in this movie. I never felt... It's so funny. You know, there's so many different subgenres in this one movie, but it never felt like it was jumping around too much. Like, it all just meshed together very, very well. A lot of that also has to do with the fact that you have Mick Jackson, who's interesting. He's actually a British director. And what I love about what he sort of does for this is you kind of feel like the movie is from the perspective of somebody who's looking in on L.A. Which, you know, in theory, this could really be a navel-gazing jerk-off fest about, like, oh, look how great it is to be in L.A. A lot of Woody Allen's movies can be like that about New York. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the worser ones. <laughs> Did you get that feeling, though? I never got the no, feeling like that's, it. No, that's what I'm saying, is that I think it really yeah. avoids that, because I think it feels like, from the perspective of someone who is kind of watching from a distance, but also being sort of enchanted, which is actually sort of how the production started. Uh, they actually toured him around L.A. for a bit, and he sort of was enchanted by a lot of things that Steve Martin sort of took for granted. And I think you sort of feel that with the way that he kind of makes Los Angeles feel... Like, this, you know, very mixed bag of, like, it's a crowded mess, there's a lot of assholes there, there's a weird sort of self-obsessed culture that's going on, but at the same time, there's this, like I said, base of a reality you can cling on to with Steve Martin and his sort of romantic foibles that still feels really engaging. So, there's the great scenery all around. Like, I love the scene where he's on Venice Beach, and he meets with Sarah Jessica Parker's character, and there's this really fun back and forth going on, just like, I don't want to use you, I don't mind, let's go. That whole thing, but there's a vibrant setting of Venice Beach and all this activity going on that really sort of cements the idea that she's in this excited state and he's down dejected. They use a great use of the environment with a lot of the way that sort of Mick Jackson photographs it and how Steve Martin's character kind of reacts off of it. Yeah, I agree. And the, like the mural on the, her entire building where she lives mm-hmm. and all these little, you know, shops set up, these little whatever, kiosks all over the place. Uh, she was it almost felt like she was the fun part of LA. Like, you know what he still kind of wanted to have, you know, he still wanted to be the young guy living in LA and experiencing it and enjoying it all. Um, but that's not who he is anymore. Ultimately he, the fact that he lives in LA almost is like pushed to the background a little bit because he, he meets this woman who's not from there, who doesn't know it. So he could show her the sides of LA that he's grown in love. It's now, and get her accustomed to it and, and just experience it all over again with her. And I thought that was really cool. 
particularly in probably the most Steve Martin-y bit of the whole movie, in which, and probably the most iconic bit of the movie in general, where he does a bit of performance art and roller yeah. skates through a museum, which is great. It's a wonderful comedic set piece, and they there's a silliness and warping of reality that's there, but there's still an earnest fun that's going on with him, just as a character wanting to do something a bit rebellious, a bit off the cuff, that's just so infectiously joyous to watch. Uh, yeah, I agree, and um, I don't know, you might have already said it, your favorite bit in the movie. I think my favorite bit in the movie is when it's him, his assistant, uh, Richard Grant, and Sarah, and it's you're facing them, and he's describing what he's seen in that fucking painting. <laughs> it zooms out and shows the page, but it's just like some abstract red smear. <laughs> it was so funny. He's holding the dog, but yet it's like... Does he want to hold the dog? It's just the dog. It's so funny. But in a way, you know, it's funny. I was talking to my wife about it where Steve Martin gets how pretentious the whole scene can be and how rude and how much assholes people can be. And I've never, ever since I was a kid watching Steve Martin gotten the vibe that he is that. You know, this didn't feel like a, see, I'm not one of them movie. This, like, just proved that he's not. I don't think he ever had to prove it. Like, Steve Martin just seems like a really down-to-earth, private, yet funny guy. I think what really works about that is the fact that it does present his character as sort of one that's flawed. Like, you could have, like I said, easily made this navel-gazing. And there are points where you kind of worry about that, especially in a modern context, sort of him being this really successful middle-aged guy who's like, oh, my life kind of sucks. It's not that. Instead, it's more of like, I have a lot of fun with my life. I do enjoy what I, you know, my friends and the sort of hobbies I do and even my work to a certain extent, but I still have some unfulfilled elements in there. There's still sort of now what-ism, you know, uh, a bit of ennui, as it were, that I think a lot of, especially um, if you watch, say, Judd Apatow comedies that would later come, uh, sort of have that issue. Uh, But this is a movie that I think really examines the character on, like, an overall spectrum and has that sort of thrown back in his face, which is like, yeah, that sucks, but also you can be kind of a dick, especially all the stuff that happens in the climax that involves him and Victoria Tennant and their sort of um, stuff at the hotel. Um, Yes. I, I think a lot of that shows that there's some perspective there, which I think makes him, like we said less of like a see i'm not that kind of guy it's like i'm not that guy but i'm also pretty flawed on my own right and i think a lot of that is really exemplified with something we haven't even mentioned at all the whole subplot with the sign that speaks to him yeah which which was so fun but i i kind of want to go back to something you said before um you know where he's he is having a good time and stuff but you know there's just something missing i mean they say that in the the opening line in the movie Mm -hmm. where he's like you know I was having too much fun being depressed, but I'm actually having fun, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, stuff like, and it was really well done, but I mean, yeah, to get to the sign, I like the bit with the sign. I'm glad they didn't go the route they were going, saying they were going to go like the original script idea. Um, I like that. It's never explained. Right. It's this sort of magical realism element. For those of you who don't know, in the original drafts, it was going to be revealed that the sign was an alien interacting with the Steve Martin character, who was disguised as the repairman, and it was going to be played by John Pertwee, uh, one of the previous Doctor Whos. Uh, but he got he was ill, and they decided to cut that out, and all for the better. And there's yes, I agree. 
there's it's interesting. You, there's also some deleted material that I watched uh, prior here. Where there are some speaking of big names that show up. There's a whole subplot of a character, an agent, who gets Steve Martin gigs, played by John Lithgow. Um, who's really funny in those scenes. There's a bit, Steve Martin asks, do, I, do you have any advice for me? Yes, skipping. It's the perfect compromise between running and walking. Skip. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that. That's a great line. It's, it's a great line, but I totally get why they cut that character. And there's also a whole subplot that involved, like, in the background, his uh, Steve Martin's neighbor, who was a boxer, that was going through a whole thing, played by Scott Bakula. Fucking Quantum Leap himself. It's Quantum Leap himself, yes. That's uh, awesome. We, we almost had two Star Trek captains in this movie. He knew to excise that material because it was too much of a distraction from our main characters and their sort of plights that's going on. And I think the, the sign stuff is a great example of using that sort of magical realism stuff to also guide him in an interesting way. And I think there's there's a lot of great interaction between him and the sign. There, It feels... Like, the, the most sort of maturation of something you would get in The Jerk. Like, that feels like it would be a one-scene hilarious bit in one of the Carl Reiner comedies. And he treats it as more of a sincere, like, hey, I'm kind of lost, and I literally have this signpost to guide me. But in this sort of indirect way, that leads to such a charming ending with the whole do-a-diddy bit. And I like that. It's There's really not that much to it. Like, he's like, do-a-diddy. I mean, obviously you hear her playing it on the tuba and stuff like that throughout the movie. But even the sign's like, I don't know, I had to think of something last minute. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of works just for the overall sort of message of the movie, which is, you know, life can be kind of confusing and be kind of shitty, but don't treat yourself too seriously. Kind of lay back and enjoy yourself a bit when you can. Do I what did know, man. I, I got a perfect <laughs> life, you know what I mean? Well, that's true. We, I mean, we both do. We're podcasters. Yeah. Uh, we we yeah. have the best life ever. <laughs> I'm a physical specimen. Like, I, I, I look fantastic. I In don't fact, wheeze when I breathe. We're I, not I a video podcast because you guys would just be too entranced by our visages. Yeah. It's, it's too like, much. I, yeah, too turned on, really, turned is what on. you're trying to say. I mean, too turned on. To quote Steve Martin, you would be too um, artistically erect. Watching yes, and, right. and I don't, I don't need exactly. that. I no, and we that. and we don't want to inflict that on people because yeah, I get enough attention on the street as it is. You know what I'm saying? I don't need all that internet attention too. There he was just a walking down the street. <laughs> is there anything that maybe doesn't hold up as well about LA Story? You know, to be honest, no. It, it's obviously it was made in the early '90s, like end of the 80s 90s 91 so it's dated in the fashion and things like that but to me it still really holds up it's it's just a smart sweet script and you know it's written very well acted incredibly throughout the movie there to me there's not one actor in it where i'm like okay this guy's kind of rough or girl whatever it's a really good movie i really enjoyed it i i like I said, I don't know if I've ever seen it before. I think I did, but I, I this is one of the first ones, if not biggest one, that I haven't seen that I've had to watch for this show that I've enjoyed the most. I really, really like this movie. Well, you know, I, I definitely agree. It's one that I actually own. It was one that when we were doing our little Steve Martin thing, I was just like, you know what, at least I haven't watched in a while, and I'd like to rewatch it, especially now from an older context. And I, I think what especially works is you mentioned the fact that it doesn't feel dated. I think it's not necessarily that it doesn't feel dated as much as it firmly sets itself in its time and feels right. like a period piece almost. And there's stuff that you can latch onto 
with this period piece that still kind of resonates, and other things that you can just be like, well, that's very much of the time, and it still kind of works because it's firmly placing itself in that era. It's a bit less forgivable when a movie tries to be sort of like, oh no, we are timeless and completely isolated, and something of that time suddenly pops in there. Perfect example, ever watch Gremlins, and there's, it's mostly, oh, small town, scenic, warm, mm. and then there's a breakdancing Gremlin. Yeah. That's where it doesn't work. <laughs> that's dated yeah. versus firmly in its time. And I think that's what LA Story really works at being, but still, there is a lot of resonating truth that kind of comes out of it. It is definitely, I would say, probably my favorite of the stuff that um, Steve Martin's written in his sort of post very crazy Carl Reiner era, because admittedly, like, I still love the jerk and the man with two brains and Damon Nowhere Plaid. Three three Amigos, I really Three Amigos. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, you know, those types of movies I really love. But yeah, this is, like I said, this was a joy to watch this one. I'm so glad that you picked this one, that I basically discovered it for the first time. And that this sort of era, I think, sort of becomes a bit more underrated in Steve Martin's career, because he said many times that his sort of adult, mature career kind of started with All of Me, and then ends with L.A. Story. And there's a lot of really silly movies that are in between there, like Three Amigos, but there's also something like Roxanne, which is a wonderful romantic comedy that does feel very much from a mature perspective, but also has some of his silliness still intact. It's a great thing where he's matured as a comedic persona and a writer, but he still never lost that ability to sort of make fun of himself, kind of put egg on his face, which I think is why we love Steve Martin as a presence, and why we decided to devote a whole episode to him. But let's get into sort of that transitional point after the L.A. story, uh, where uh, maybe he was taking chicks, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. And one chick that we're going to cover is Sergeant Bilko. In today's army, one name stands for pride. One name stands for courage. One name stands for honor. One name stands alone. Bilko! Yes, my colonel! We have rules and regulations. Sergeant Ernest G. Bilko. Let's go, campers! Wakey, wakey! He's calm under pressure. Now, where did that one go? under fire. We discovered a number of possible irregularities. Sergeant Bilko! Colonel Hall, you look fantastic, sir. Have you lost weight? And courageous <laughs> under attack. Make the bad man stop. Steve Martin, Dan Aykroyd, and Phil Hartman. I'm just so damn proud. Sergeant Bilko. Bilko! Sergeant Bilko, uh, released in 1996, specifically March 29th, 1996. Uh, This is coming in sort of an era in the early to mid-90s where we were getting a lot of sort of sitcom, based on sitcom films that were coming out. Probably the crown jewel of them is the Brady Bunch movie, which is still very fun. Yeah, and I, I always got this one confused for some reason, even though this is a way better movie than McHale's Navy. Yeah, because most of these are pretty terrible, these mm-hmm. sort of era things, because, like, the Brady Bunch movie is one of the better examples, but you also got, like, in between there's, like, Beverly Hillbillies, oh, or God. McHale's Navy, or there's there's so many just bland, forgettable mm-hmm. comedies based on these older relics. And this is based on The Phil Silver Show, which was a 50 sitcom I'm not really that aware of. I saw some clips in preparation for the episode, and it seems 
fine. I mean, Phil Silver's I mostly know from. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Yes, I agree. I, I, I didn't really... I knew the show existed, but I had never seen it. And it, there's definitely a sitcominess to the approach of this, because basically Sergeant Bilko um, features Steve Martin as the titular sergeant who leads a platoon of uh, the sort of outcasts of the army, um, a lot of the guys yeah. that are more there to kind of just, like, have fun rather than actually train or be actual sergeants in any sort of fashion. Yeah, sure. It's the age-old, you know, a ragtag group of crazy kids who, you know, are really into shenanigans and gambling and drinking. Who are trying to maybe mash or earn some stripes. Ah, I see what you did there. You, sir, are a comedic genius. Much like Steve Martin. Oh, oh, shucks. Thank you so much. I can't believe it. (laughs) And, I mean, this is one that's very much sort of forgotten in Steve Martin's career. It's not one that a lot of people bring up. I'm honestly surprised we did this, because, I mean, behind curtain, guys, before we were going to be doing, like, the picks, I implored Adam, just like, don't make it, like, cheaper by the dozen, or, like, the Pink Panther. Just something that it's unfunny and we can't really talk about. Yeah, see, I, well, and I was totally on board with that, because I can't sit through those. And even like, then, they're not fun to talk about because they're just no. shitty comedies. It's right. really We're literally tough. just going to be shitting on it the entire time. That's why I went with like the other my other choice, Out of Towners, which I've never seen. I just mm-hmm. know it's bad. Yeah. Well, I've heard it's bad. I don't know. Yeah, we've heard it's bad. Um, And then, so Sergeant Bilko, I was just kind of like, I don't know. I mean, whatever. It might work. And it was perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's it's very forgettable. It suffers from something that a lot of these military comedies suffer from, which is just that the first half is really fun, and then they actually have to have a plot going. They realize, like, oh, shit, we have to do a plot, and it becomes lamer. See Stripes, which is a really funny, hilarious, great movie for the first two-thirds of it, and the third act is like, a uh, plot. They just lose the comedy in the plot. And honestly, just the, the funner stuff, and I think that's why something like M.A.S.H., perhaps, is the better example of sort of the military comedy, is that there isn't much of a plot, and it's just these guys kind of hanging out, and a, sort of going against authority. There, I, I think that sort of would work better for especially a military-based comedy, if more of them did that. But this, because the first half is a lot more of just Sergeant Bilko doing shenanigans, and either Dan Aykroyd or another character we'll get into um, sort of coming upon them and everybody trying to cover it up. And that stuff is fun. It's not great comedy, but it's very silly, but well-timed comedy. And especially when they have to cover everything up. And I like that they sort of build the world in terms of like, oh, well, the radio guy plays this song, and then we have to start packing up, and then we have to do stuff and hide. Like, I love the reveal of the horse hanging after they had the horse doing. Yeah, that was funny, and why it's there. Right. Because, you know, they explained that fresh horse shit attracts the flies. Well, sir, yes. it's, it's an easier delivery system. <laughs> <laughs> it's fresh. And, you know what, and speaking of the generosity that I was talking about with the L.A. story, I think that's also the case with a lot of the derelicts that Sergeant Bilko is under in, in the movie. They feel like equals to Sergeant Bilko as opposed to underlings, which is a fun dynamic. And especially when you have Daryl Mitchell who you're like, oh, he's that black guy who was in, like, 10 Things I Hate About You and all those, like, teen comedies of the 90s um, as the sort of straight man. I really like the interaction between him and all the other guys, like Max Cassell, Pamela Adlon, who I have never seen this young. Just, like, a a lot of um, fun people that show up that you might recognize from a lot of these sort of comedies this era. It's a fun group of, you know, wastoids of 
the outcasts of the army that you want to kind of hang out with and you wish the movie would just do that more it was funny like seeing them and picking them out like oh my god that's the fat guy from varsity blues yes oh my god there's clifton collins jr yes oh my oh my god that's the other guy from my cousin Vinny. oh this is fantastic <laughs> and even in hey. the other parts of the army like austin pendleton or, or max mm-hmm. from the muppet movie shows up as yep. the downtrodden put upon guy who's doing the hover tank or chris rock shows oh, up you know the funny thing too this is to me one of the last really good dan Aykroyd supporting roles i mean he's not there a lot um no he's, but when he said it he's good he's funny no especially i love the bit where steve warren comes up to him as he's flowering he's like i love the nightlife i love okay <laughs> very hilarious yeah because this is in a speaking of nothing but trouble which we spoke about in the la story thing that sort of broke dan Aykroyd. <laughs> It was sort of the moment where he just snapped and from there made a lot of bad decisions. But this but, is a good example of him, you know, doing what he can, coming to the role, doing what he needs to do, doing it fine. But the difference between, say, a Chevy Chase and a Dan Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd was always kind of odd. Everybody already knew he had a weird personality. So I don't know that Nothing But Trouble really broke him as much as it did Chevy Chase, to be honest. Well, I think it broke him in terms of, like, that was his moment to go full-out weird, and then he kind of stopped doing that, except it would kind of come up occasionally in whether it be Mm. Blues Brothers 2000 or him going on Larry King and talking about, aliens probably won't come here, especially because of 9-11, which is one of my favorite internet clips of all time. Oh, yeah. I heard this, uh, you know, not to get off track, but since we're talking about Dan Aykroyd, I heard this, he said he was standing outside, he was producing some show that was going to cover uncover government secrets, and he got a phone call from Britney Spears, and he answered the phone, and he turned around, and there was some guy staring at him, uh, standing outside of a black Cadillac, and then he turned back, and then five seconds later, he turned back, and the guy in the Cadillac were gone, so he doesn't know if it was cloaking, or if they were aliens, or what, I'm like, this fucking guy is off his rocker. <laughs> First of all, why is Britney Spears calling Dad Aykroyd? They had a good connection after Crossroads. They keep in touch, Adam. Oh, my God. Oh, God. He was in Crossroads. Oh, yes. no. He played her father, Adam. They beat uh, him very yeah. close on the film. I bet he wasn't a real father. I bet things would have turned out different for her. Or even better. <laughs> well, that's not saying. I don't think we would have had shaved head umbrella gate. Maybe not. Uh, but also, maybe she would have also had the Crystal Skull Vodka. Uh, put into her veins. But, you know, anyway, back to Sergeant Bilko. Someone who I did feel was kind of wasted, and this is a bit more, you know, just in hindsight, it's more harmful, but this is one of the more prominent roles in a film that the late and seminal comedic talent Phil Hartman had in his all-too-brief career, and it's not a great use of Phil Hartman at all. And that's such a shame watching this movie. It's no, the I, biggest disappointment I, of the whole movie. I agree, but you have to admit, Phil Hartman does the best with it that he can. There is some of the looks he gives, it, it, like especially when the one um, private is in drag and he's hitting on him at the restaurant, and the way Phil Hartman's looking at him, and when he's leaning back in the chair and he falls, just Phil Hartman was so good that... To me, he was almost like a John Candy to where they could get shitty material and they would still shine. I mean, in theory, though, I will say this this might be the most controversial statement I've ever said on the show. This same year, he was in a film where it was also similarly very small use of him, not the best of him. But I would argue he made 
more out of it. Jingle all the way as Arnold Schwarzenegger's romantic antagonist who keeps hitting on his wife. Uh, yeah. Because at yeah. least he had... Your wife's cookies are just the best. That's memorable. And Versus... wasn't Small Soldiers only like a year or two later? I know. Well, yeah. I mean, also his tragic death was a year or two later, unfortunately. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, no, but that's true. That's, no, I know. I know. 100% true. It's sad, but true. Yeah. And I think it's just like watching this especially, it just feels like we're kind of just putting him into the box of like, oh, generic comedic villain. And but I mean, this might be the weakest one, but he did this a lot. No, like that's a, true. Ah, he was uh, CB4, house guest, was Sinbad. <laughs> I, I think mean, it's, it's just a, one of many examples of the fact that just, we took Phil Hartman for granted. We I thought, thought we oh, really he, did. he's going to be really around. We, we thought, oh, he's going to be around for years. He's going to be doing great stuff long after this, and we just didn't know. And I think this is sort of a big crystallization point of that. And it's a shame, but I, I will say... Agree. Funniest bit of him in the movie is when they're he's at the movies with uh, Glee, uh, Glenn Heaney, <laughs> and uh, and they see the sort of opening bit in the movie theater, just like if you like, get too scared, feel free to hold on to me. They're dancing raisinets. That doesn't frighten you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair, it's that it was that weird like er, mid '90s CG version of that, which is kind of yeah. terrifying watching. Oh, it now. it's horrible. It's, <laughs> it's horrifying. really horrific. But also speaking of people who have unfortunately passed, uh, Glenn Hetty, who plays uh, the love interest of Sergeant Bilko. Um, I love their dynamic. The whole thing of, like, yeah, she, she keeps winging at the altar and he keeps being behind because, oh, I have to gamble, I have to do this. On paper, that's really fucked up and it's clear he has a problem. But also, I love the fact that she kind of gets off on that. Like, the whole bit where she comes back to the church and she's like, I can't believe you did this again. I can't stand you. But then he does the whole, like, three-card Monty thing, like, come on, if we do this, then you give me another shot. It's a fun back and forth between the two of them that I also wish was honestly in the movie more. Like, that conflict is way more interesting than the stuff with Phil Hartman being the comedic rival. One of my favorite bits in the movie is when he walks into the church where he acts like he was in a car accident trying to save orphans or whatever the hell it was. And he's on the walker, and he, like, ah, he goes to walk away for the walker. He's like, oh my god, I'm cured. <laughs> I'm cured, yes. There's a lot of fun comedic sort of especially physical comedy here. This is a yeah. good example of Steve Martin's physical work, like particularly when he tries to impress Stan Aykroyd when he comes in. Mm-hmm. It's like, everybody get in the file, go like this. And it's a great use of him. Just especially, the, I love the way that his right foot is slightly upward. After yes. He's like standing upright. Great bit. Very reminiscent of his stand-up. Yes. The way true. he would move and sway his hips and... You know, the chuckle and fake laugh and everything. It was very early Steve Martin. Yeah, I think a lot of that there. And it's interesting because he wasn't the first choice for the role. Originally, it was going to be Michael Keaton who turned it down just due to disagreements with the production. And they also tried to get Albert Brooks, Billy Crystal, and Robin Williams. And you can kind of tell that it was sort of a role that would fit them if they just kind of placed it in. I gotta say, I'm glad, you know, rest in peace again, but I'm glad it wasn't Robin Williams because it would have just been so over the top. And also would have just been like, oh, you're just kind of repeating Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah, absolutely. Keaton would have been interesting. And the only thing about Michael Keaton, and I love Michael Keaton, but even when he does comedic roles, don't you get like almost like a dark, sinister feeling from Michael Keaton no matter what he does? I don't know if it's just his face or what. But he's, he's always, like, chilling a little bit to me. Well, it would have been probably more of a darkly comedic performance, especially where it's like this guy's like, you have an obsession with gambling. You're ignoring your wife. You're completely abusing your power as a sergeant. 
which maybe would have been a more interesting movie. Um, That's true. But still, getting to see Martin here, it is a, it, it, there's a lot of fun, especially comedic asides. Like, I love the bit where Dana Aykroyd is like, as you were, um, and they're all confused, and he says, he means go back to what you were doing. <laughs> like, just small asides like that, that show, once again, this is very sitcoming. But I think it's a, it, this is a good example of Steve Martin kind of taking this very meager script and doing a lot with it and making him, while obviously an asshole, at least a charming asshole. He definitely had fun with it. You could tell he was having a good time. Like, was it a paycheck role? Probably. But he, he did the most he could with it. And like you said, the supporting cast, again, you know, Steve Martin, you could tell because Steve Martin was a supporting actor for quite a few movies and he still pops mm-hmm. up in cameos. Um, so I think he definitely has an appreciation for his supporting cast, where he gives them more to do. He doesn't try to steal every scene he's in. A missed opportunity for the whole movie is that whole thing of them going to Vegas should have been way more of the movie. Because that's a great idea. So, like, that would be more of your third act, is like, oh, we have to do this presentation, but gambling's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I agree. They could have done so much with that, seeing him take on shows or, you know... You were throwing like a Wayne Newton cameo somewhere or something. There could have been so much fun to be had with that. Instead, we have to have this whole thing with the hovercraft and the whole conflict that's there that I don't really give a shit about. It's so not that interesting and points up a whole opportunity of like, hey, you can clearly tell he staged this and poorly, but Phil Hartman's a dick, so end of conflict? It's it's right, so lazy. Gotta get him. Yeah, it's, I agree. It's really lazy. <laughs> just the way that they all that up. And it's like I said, if they had just embraced being more of an ensemble, plotless comedy, I think we would have had something more, if gangly, at least more enjoyable and more memorable. Because ultimately, like, we're saying a lot of fun things about it. It is still a very forgettable movie. It feels like a... Oh, yeah. This is the epitome of a Comedy Central middle of the weekend. It's on. You'll watch it. It's fine. But you will not remember it at all within a couple of years. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. like, I'm even, it's so funny, I just watch it, and I'm even having trouble recollecting certain scenes to it. But one thing I did want to point out, another real fun bit, is when they did the surprise inspection and they switched buildings. Oh, that's a really, yeah, I agree, that's <laughs> that a was great a fun bit. bit. When Phil Herman finds the lingerie, he's like, is this yours, son? He's like, sir, to the best of my knowledge, you are not allowed to ask me those questions anymore. <laughs> Well, especially, yeah, because this is only two years after Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Yeah, the, thing. The, the picture of the black family. That's but, from my favorite sitcom, Black Family. <laughs> it's funny, but it makes you think. Yeah, it's it's on cable. <laughs> on unrelated note, Blackish on ABC. Anyway, um, yeah. I will say one gag that stood out to me, but in the way we were talking about dated jokes in the LA story, this is one that's more dated, and it's not one that's actually called attention to, but I had to pause the movie because holy shit wait this is here and i think you know what i'm talking about there's a point where they're kind of being harassed by phil hartman after he comes back um which sidebar i love the whole reasoning why phil hartman is shipped off to greenland Mm -hmm. that whole boxing explanation that boxing scene was funny yes it's it's a, a montage that if maybe you had a better director than Jonathan Lynn, could have been like an Edgar Wright style fast montage. It would have been perfect, yeah, but it's I still agree. pretty funny. I like it's it's a flatly directed movie, but it's serviceable. It's fine, whatever. But after they're getting harassed by Phil Hartman, Steve Martin goes back into his bedroom, and there's a shot of him with his nightstand and shot, which is like, oh, let the bad man stop. And on his nightstand is a signed picture of Donald Trump. 
<laughs> saying, oh my God, that's right. best pal, you're my best pal, Bilko, <laughs> Donald. And I'm like, wait, mm. what? This joke doesn't age well at all, or ages incredibly well because he's a scumbag piece of shit. Right. right. <laughs> it's either way, it's really upsetting because it's him with Ivanka. So it's even more creepy. It's just like, oh, God. Ugh. Sorry. Brief political tangent. It made sense for mid-90s Donald Trump because That's he was true. a shyster and a slumlord and, you know, always trying to make a buck. Now as the president, he's a shyster <laughs> and a slumlord always trying to make a buck. <laughs> and that ends the political commentary for the episode. Right. Anyway, this is around the time where we sort of start getting the post-LA story, the quote, post-mature career films. Mm. And I think what sort of broke him of that was a movie I like, but definitely a movie that sort of would paint his career as Father of the Bride. It's a perfectly charming movie, it's totally fine, but it sort of was definitely the harbinger of Steve Martin full-on selling out, and in worse ways after that. Would you say that, you know, you can kind of see the seeds of what would be his, like, cheaper by the dozen Pink Panther style, real hardcore selling out his comedy in Sergeant Belko. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, I'd see it more in part two though. Yeah, oh yeah, Father of the Bride Part Two is a great example of that. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely see some of that stuff here, where especially it, it's a paycheck rule. It's a sort of hey, we're gonna base this off of an existing TV show, and it's still fun, like we talked about. There's still really fun, silly moments in there, but I think you can definitely start seeing that sort of mature charm leave. And I think a lot of it also has to do with some of the weird experiments he did in between, like, an L.A. story and Father of the Bride. Like, I watched a movie he did called Leap of Faith, which is way more of, like, a drama. It's, it's this weird movie. That it tries to be communicative points. He plays, like, a faith healer dude that goes on the road, and he's kind of like a rock star, faith heel preacher kind of guy. And that felt like him kind of trying to experiment out. He also had similar things like the David Mamet movie Spanish Prisoner, which is not a comedy at all. It feels like he kind of did those things after he got the paychecks for these movies, which I think is at least something that he kept consistent. Like, he was always doing kind of weird experiments, but you can definitely tell this is where the paycheck roles kind of start outweighing the fun, the interesting experiments that he would do. I really did like uh, My Blue Heaven, though, too. Did you ever see My Blue Heaven? No, I haven't. But that's, which it's is, the other, it's the other like Goodfellas a, movie, right? Yeah, it's considered a quasi-sequel like sequel or remake to Goodfellas. Because it's also based on the Henry Hill stuff, um, to a certain extent, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I guess it's, to sum up Sergeant Bilko, kind of went in worrying, and we ended up realizing, it's fine. It's, it's totally a... Yeah, it is uh, what it, it is. Yeah, it is what it is. Um, but so, for, in this case, the double-edged part of our podcast title is a bit more dulled at the other end. <laughs> like, yeah, it'll, it'll kind of jab you, but it's it's nothing. It won't leave a mark. <laughs> that's that's all it is. Uh, it, it's worth watching, if nothing else, just to see all the people that pop up who are like, oh man, these are going to be later, like, bigger stars. And, like we said, some funny set pieces. Like, one we didn't mention, the whole thing with Chris Rock and Kathy Silvers, interestingly enough, who is the daughter of Phil Silvers, uh, where they're inspecting everything, and they're kind of trying to fool them briefly. Like, I love the whole thing where there's the group, like, row of boxes, and they keep adding the boxes on after they leave to the other side. <laughs> and shit like that. Yeah, that was funny. I liked how Steve Martin's like, you know, she stares at you when you're not looking. Oh, you just missed it. <laughs> <laughs> and the mirror gag to make it look like there's a lot more stuff inside of that warehouse than there is. Just 
Yeah, that was great good. side gags. Great, great little bit of side gags. Like, like there's there's charm in this movie. If you avoided thinking like, oh, this is one of those really bad Steve Martin movies that he made in like that sort of late '90s period, it's better than you probably think it is. But at the same time, it yeah. isn't one that you're going to really latch on to. No, it's better than a lot of them, but it's it's middle ground. Yes, like you said, it, it's good for uh, a TV watch. Don't go out of your way to watch it, but if it pops on somewhere. Yeah, it's worth a quick watch. Yes. It's only an hour and a half. I mean, what the hell you got to lose? Yep, pretty much. <laughs> on that mediocre note, that ends this episode of the Double-Edged Double Bill in terms of the discussion, but we got plenty of feedback to read because we asked you all over at the Double-Edged Double Bill Facebook page and the Twitter account as well, which you can see at Pod on Facebook and Twitter. Um, we asked you favorite Steve Martin movies and least favorite as well, and uh, we got a lot of response. First from Ryan Lindley, who says, uh, Parenthood, The Jerk, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, The Three Amigos. Which, yeah, those are all really good ones. Uh, especially Absolutely. I love Parenthood. Yeah, yeah and uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is one that has kind of gotten lost in the shuffle. And also had Glenn Heaty in it, um, and also Michael mm-hmm. Caine. Such a funny fucking comedy. Oh, it's so good. It's, it's Excuse a- me, may I go to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lance Langford says the jerk is his masterpiece. I don't think that's too inarguable. I think that that is probably the yeah. disagree. I don't disagree. I mean, it's a good movie. It's you know one of his best, but it's not my favorite of his. No, but, but... Adam, these cans. He hates these cans. But you know, it, it deserves a spot at the top for sure. Yes. Um. Uh. Don Chambers also says the jerk is number one. Uh. Jordan Worth Cobb says comedic hero of mine. Looking forward to this one. Also personally love Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with the whip scene in particular being my favorite, which I forgot oh, about that so scene. Good. Until oh my he posted god, it's good. Do you feel anything? Anything at all? No. No. <laughs> so good. Uh, Timothy Babinski says, The Jerk and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles will always be my faves. That, I will say, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was also in that sort of period I mentioned of like yeah. the mature comedy. Yeah, it's Classic. such a good you know my favorite john uh, hughes movie in all honesty like i love breakfast club but i think that is a perfect road yeah. comedy and how i mean john john candy is so endearing in that movie oh, it's so great Such a you feel so bad movie. for him it's He's the so good. also it's the thanksgiving movie mm-hmm. there's not a lot of options and that's the perfect one that's the one i mm-hmm. always watch on thanksgiving i agree me too so good uh kara holden says always love three amigos for sure, obviously. Um, Matthew, Matthew James says the jerk is one of my all-time favorites. Definitely. Bill Gabriel says uh, all of me, Roxanne, dead men don't wear plaid. Actually, it's interesting. In prep for the show, I watched all of me for the first time. It's one that I hadn't ever seen. And I've always heard great things about it. Another incredibly charming comedy that also shows how um, sort of generous Steve Martin can be with his supporting characters. Obviously, with Lily Tomlin in particular, that relationship is so great. They're back and yeah. forth. Well, she's movie. so good, too. Oh, my God. She's so great. Will you tap? Yes, I will tap. <laughs> so good. And Rafe Telsch has this to say, uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is underrated and too often forgot. If you don't know, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is a movie where Steve Martin plays on being a film noir detective and actually interacts with footage of people like um, James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, um, Joan Crawford, such a great comedy that is 
perfectly edited, and it just is so fun to watch, especially if you know the film noir tropes. So great. If you don't, if you've never seen it before, worth seeking out. Such a great movie. Yeah, I agree. That's one I haven't seen in a while, but uh, that's one I'd like to revisit for sure. Matt Kowalski says, The Jerkin Father of the Bride, of course. Uh, Joe Magnuson says, L.A. Story and Bowfinger are great overlooked films. Bringing Down the House is Embarrassment of Cringe Riches. Which, yeah, we haven't talked about the bad ones, but that may be the low point. <laughs> Just in terms of Steve Barton's career. That is one of the bigger low points. Yeah, that's pretty bad, and I'm not a big fan of Bowfinger either. I think it's a little too schlocky. I think there are points where it's pretty dated, but I will say um, it has one of the better Eddie Murphy performances of the last few years, and it's not his like big Hollywood stereotype type role, but the him as the goofy, awkward, shy nerd is so fucking funny. It saves, like, the second half of that movie. Oh, yeah, no, he's so funny. Like, when she gets naked in front of him, he's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not an Eddie Murphy role you, like, usually get. That's not yeah. his usual shtick, and it's so fucking great. <laughs> that is worth watching the movie for. Um, and there's also just weird things, like Robert Downey Jr. in that weird period post-drugs, pre-Iron Man. <laughs> really right. weird bit of his time, <laughs> for sure. Um, and then Brian Kane actually has this to say about our previous episode about sea monsters. I remember I wasn't expecting Dagon to be as campy as it was. I saw it hot off the heels of the Call of Cthulhu Dark Corners of the Earth on PC coming out and was looking for more. Of course, this was before I knew who Stuart Gordon was and his history with Reanimator. And I think that's part of the charm with Dagon, um, even though it's probably more serious than most of his other movies. Uh, it definitely has that kind of Stuart Gordon camp. Yeah, I agree, but I think a lot of the camp honestly comes from Ezra Gooden, and he's mm-hmm. terrible. Yes. We talked all about that last time on our Sea Creature mm-hmm. Double Feature episode, which you can listen to now. Um, we want to do some announcements before we leave. Thanks to Chris Oliver for the music used on our show. Listen to more of his work at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Also, thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that is used for our podcast. She accepts commissions at fiverr with two rs.com slash eescarta. And also, I haven't said much about this it's been the planning stages for a while but i wanted to put out there if you are in the atlanta georgia area during labor day weekend i will be on several panels for the horror and urban fantasy track that'll be labor day weekend august 31st through september 3rd um and i'll be doing panels on like i said the horror track and the urban fantasy track which if you're if you've ever gone to dragon con it's super packed but i'll be at the peach tree weston that's where all my panels will be and I'll probably announce the actual panels I'll be on. It's still a bit TBD. We're still working out the kinks. But like I said, Labor Day weekend, August 31st through September 3rd. Watch me there. And if you're a fan of the show, uh, come on. We'll have a drink. It'll be fun. Yeah, I'm not going to be there. He, Adam will not be present. He'll be there in not spirit. Adam. As we mentioned, uh, definitely follow us on the like us on the Facebook page at DEDBpod. Follow us on Twitter at DEDBpod. Um, also we're at double edge, double bill at gmail.com for, if you want to email us any kind of feedback you have positive or negative, we always want to encourage that. Um, also you can follow us on our own individual accounts on Twitter. I am at not the who's Tommy. And what are you, Adam? What are you? I'm Malekith fan six, nine, six, nine. You know that already dog. So does the world. <laughs> oh God. Are we going to bring down the house territory? Oh, Stop. blowing it up. No, don't. No, you're better than this. Adam. You're better than this. Um, I don't know and, uh, that I am. Probably not. We also want to encourage you all to subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review us to give the show more visibility, and we especially want you to do that because if you are a U.S. resident, 
we are giving you the chance to win some free shit giveaway. What? What? Yes. Uh, specifically, we have stickers made of our logo that we mm-hmm. have uh, several of them. If you email us a picture of that, along with uh, your mailing information, if you're, like we said, a U.S. resident, we will send you a sticker pack. And just something that right. I did find out. The second, um, according to our analytics, the second uh, country, Sweden. Wow. Really? Well, uh, it's only 3%, but we have a solid amount of Swedish hey, listeners. That's something. That's awesome. Yes, for sure. And uh, to our Swedish listeners, a burgibur. <laughs> um, but yeah, like we said, if you um, email us a picture of your iTunes review, then we will send you a free sticker pack if you are a U.S. resident. So go out there, give us a bit more love, and uh, you know we're clearly bribing you so we could get a bit more iTunes reviews. But yeah, but hey, whatever, free shit. Fuck it, yeah, free shit. Do it. Put it on the back of your computer. Everybody's like, hey, what's this double edged double bill? Oh, it's a podcast I listen to, and it spreads the word. That's right. all we're about, spreading the word. On that note, uh, let's uh, roller skate on out of here through the museum, Adam. Let's go. Oh, shit. I just broke something. (laughs) Good night, everybody.